0: This morning we're going to be looking at Moses at the burning bush. Moses at the burning bush. That's in Exodus chapter 3. And we're looking at the first five verses this morning. Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through to 5. I want to start with an introduction and uh, I've crammed a load in this, uh, uh the, in the recap rather of this introduction. There's a lot in the recap. I, I just, I find it absolutely fascinating the way God dealt with Moses right from the time that Moses was born. And it's so obvious to me at any rate that um, that Moses was under God's providential care. And it's very clear, clear to me, it certainly wasn't clear to Moses at the time. It's probably a lot clearer to me and to you if you've read the story of Moses. You'll be ahead of Moses in a sense. Because as things were unfolding for Moses you know it was becoming apparent what was going on perhaps for him but we know the beginning from the end here don't we with Moses and it's very clear when you study the life of Moses that God was leading Moses uh, directing him in certain ways and to do certain things and ultimately God had a plan for Moses and that would be to deliver the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt how much of that did uh, Moses know at the time? Probably nowhere near as much as we know. And it's it's really, uh, it's exciting in a sense to just read this story, see how it unfold, unfolds. And it doesn't really spoil it at all, knowing how it's going to end. you just I can read this story time and time again. Anyway, let me just give you a, a very um, full recap here. We've seen that in the providence of God, when Moses was a baby he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and that happened at a time when all the other Hebrew baby boys were being thrown to their death in the river. Moses had been put in a basket and hidden in that same river that river of death and Pharaoh's daughter came along saw the basket uh, in the river and uh, the babies were being put to death on orders of none other than her father, and Pharaoh himself. Forty years later, after Pharaoh's daughter had adopted Moses, so he's forty years old, it came into Moses' heart to visit his Hebrew brethren. He was a prince of Egypt, enjoying all the privileges of uh, being the son of or the grandson, if you like, of of Pharaoh. He intervened when he visited his Hebrew brethren. He intervened and killed an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrews. As it is written in Acts chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. He killed the Egyptian. The next day, Moses intervened in a fight between two Hebrews. And one of them said to him, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Clearly that Hebrew who was having a fight at the time, he had no idea that 40 years later that Moses would be precisely that. He would be a prince and a judge over the Hebrews, over the Israelites. And appointed by God to do so. At that point, though, after Moses had intervened in the fight between the two Hebrews, he realised, well, this thing is known. What I did yesterday, killing the Egyptian, it's known. word got out. And sure enough, word reached none other than Pharaoh, who consequently sought to kill Moses. I always found that quite interesting, he sought to kill The adopted son of his daughter, the princess of Egypt. But anyway, he sought to kill Moses. Moses fled to Midian where he sat down by a well. Whilst he was there, shepherds drove the seven daughters of the priest of Midian away. However, once again, Moses intervened. This time he helped the woman, the women rather, and he watered their flock. What followed is that Moses was invited by their father, the priest of Midian, to stay with him. And he married one of the seven daughters. He married Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, Gershom. Moses abided in Midian for 40 years. Anyone who can do a little bit of maths here will work out that this takes him to 80 years of age. He spent 40 years as living in luxury in Egypt... And then 40 years after that in Midian. And during that time he looked after his father-in-law's flock. He was a shepherd for 40 long years. Today we shall look at a passage that gives details of the Lord appearing to Moses in a burning bush. Declaring to him that he had come down to deliver the Israelites. That God has come down to deliver the Israelites, having heard their cries and having seen their affliction. Let's turn to the word of God, Exodus chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 1 again. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. As I say, Moses was 80 at this time. And he'd looked after the flock for 40 long years. And as we see in verse 1, he led the flock through the wilderness and he came to the mountain of God. Even to Horeb. Very soon, having served that 40 year long apprenticeship, Moses would go from shepherding sheep to shepherding the Hebrews. Perhaps anything in excess to 2 million people shepherding them leading them out of captivity in Egypt and I say two million it's not just a number I've picked out of thin air we're told in the scriptures that there were 600 men on foot 600,000 rather 600,000 so if you add to that the women and the children and, and other men older men perhaps It's reasonable to say that the number of people would have been in excess of 2 million, that Moses would sitting out of captivity in Egypt. You may have noticed that the name given for Moses' father-in-law in in verse 1 is Jethro, whereas the name given in chapter 2 and verse 18 is Ruel. Just have a look at that. And when they came to Ruel their father, that's the seven daughters whom Moses had helped when the shepherds drove them away. We we see there that in that chapter 2, verse 18, that their father's name is Ruel. That's the the, the, the girl's father and the father-in-law of Moses, a different name there. Although it's of no great consequence to our study in Moses, you might be interested to know, of an explanation that is given it sounds perfectly reasonable perfectly plausible and that is that by the time we get to chapter 3 and verse 1 40 years have passed by 40 years from chapter 2 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 1 just a few <laughs> verses but 40 long years and Ruel was probably dead and gone and jethro was probably his son Heir and priest of Midian in his father's place. That's um, what's been suggested by various commentators. It seems to make sense to me. Anyway, Moses was at the back of the desert, at the mountain of God, Horeb. And uh, again, for what it's worth, if you like a bit of geography here, we'll assume that that's Sinai, where Mount Sinai is, and that's a three days journey from where the Jews were in Egypt, to give you some idea of the geography of it all, about three days away from where the Hebrews were in captivity, the mountain of God, Horeb. Although it may have provided some nice pasture for the flock, it would have been very inhospitable, with no creature comfort. I think it's reasonable to say that, don't you? There wouldn't have been any tea, coffee or cakes at the mountain of God. It would have been a solitary place with no distractions. And when you think about it, it would have been the perfect environment to meet with God. There was a similar situation back in Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob had an encounter with God. He had a dream in which he saw a ladder reach up to heaven with the angels of God ascending and descending the ladder. In Genesis chapter 28 verse 16 and 17 it is written then Jacob Jacob awoke from his sleep and said surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. The thing is that Jacob was not tucked up in his bed at the time. He was out in the open. We're told that he took stones for his pillow. No doubt the sky was his ceiling, the stars were his lights, and the desert floor was his bed. Again, it was a solitary place with no distractions. The perfect place to meet with God. And in the book of Daniel, another perfect, you wouldn't think so, but a perfect place, so it would seem, to meet with God was in a fiery furnace. Three godly men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who refused to bow their knees to idols. They ended up being cast into a fiery furnace. And right there with them, God was in that fire. Let's have a look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire, and out of the midst of a bush. And he looked... And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. According to this verse, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in the bush. And then when you get to verse 4, it can be seen that the angel was in fact a divine messenger. And none other than the Lord God. See that? Look at verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. The Lord, Jehovah God, the covenant name of God, um, with, for his, pe- his the name that he's known by, by his covenant people, the Lord. And it makes sense in a way, when you, I don't know about you, when I hear people who aren't Christians calling God Lord, it doesn't sit right with me. I, don't, I think to myself, he's not your Lord. Although one day you will bow the knee before him. Anyway, it was the Lord God who was in that fire, in that flame of fire. As the Bible commentator John Gill said, not a created angel, but the angel of God's presence and covenant, the eternal word and son of God. What was John Gill talking about there? Who was he saying that the angel of the Lord Or the Lord, capital letters there, Jehovah, Yahweh. Who was he saying that uh, that person was in the flame there? I'll read it again, what John Gill said. Not that he has to be right, but I, I think he is. Not a created angel, but the angel of God's presence and covenant, the eternal word and son of God, Jesus. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, 1,500 years before he made himself flesh, before he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 1,500 years before he was born of a virgin. And we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, was in that flame of fire in the bush. Whilst we pray that the Lord God would meet with us and minister to us when we meet together in this church, it's, it's a good idea, isn't it, to to pray that God would be here. Otherwise, what's the point in us being here? It's a waste of time, isn't it, if God's not going to be here in this place? And we do, I certainly pray that God would, be here ministering to each one of us including me all of us and that he would touch us with his presence and even the the little one next door that even now he would be dealing graciously with her and with each one of us but it's 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 a real comfort to know that God most certainly does not just meet with his people and speak to them in places of worship in fact, if you're a Christian, then God is with you wherever you may be. We've seen this. He's be with you wherever you may be, guiding you, teaching you as you read the Bible, comforting you, challenging you, convicting you of your sin, sanctifying you, conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as you grow in holiness and grow in the knowledge of the truth. As the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian Christians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this now. For it is God that works or who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is working in you to will and to do of your good pleasure. That's whether you're in here or wherever you are. And I'd say thank God for that that God is in me, working in me, to will and to do of his good pleasure, because it wouldn't happen otherwise. I'll be working to will and to do of my good pleasure, if God wasn't working in me, to will and to do of his good pleasure. The Son of God, who has said, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age is with his redeemed wherever, wherever they are and that includes in the storms in the fiery furnaces in the wilderness even the wilderness of this hostile world that we live in let's have a look at verses 3 through to 6 or five yeah 6 and moses said i will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. I'll read the next verse because I really want you to take note for now of the last part of it. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. I want to read that bit again. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses was drawn to something most unusual that he noticed. A flame, a fire that was in a bush and that flame was not consuming the bush. By saying, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt, Moses decided to investigate further. He saw something weird, something unusual, and he decided, I've got to draw closer and see what's going on. Curiosity there, isn't it? However, what is also very clear is that all along, and no doubt long before Moses even set out with the flock, To the backside of the desert, he was being led by and led to the Lord, who would speak to him and give him the task of leading the Israelites out of their affliction in Egypt. This is what it was all leading to. Even though there was a very genuine curiosity by Moses. Again, God works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure we realise just how much so God works in us? And it's a very comforting thing to know that, if you know anything about the condition of your heart, how deceitful it is, how depraved it is. In verse 5, we see that when the Lord called Moses out of the midst of the burning bush, he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet... For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. I want you to look at the effect that those words had on Moses. And again, we see in verse 6 there, that he hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Likewise, when Jacob, the one who had that dream, uh, where he saw the ladder reaching up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending that ladder. When he woke up from having that dream, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Very similar there, isn't it? Uh, Moses would never have imagined that the Lord was in that burning bush and Jacob He didn't know that the Lord was there. He just suddenly realised the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And then in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 17, we're told that Jacob was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? And there were others too, such as the prophet Isaiah about 700 BC who had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ upon a throne. Let me emphasize again, 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus was born into this world and we know for a fact from John's Gospel that the vision that Isaiah had was of Jesus. Listen to this, what uh, Isaiah saw. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain, or two, he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, said Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Get that response. Woe is me, for I am undone. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And in Revelation chapter 1, in a vision, The Apostle John saw the Lord Jesus Christ clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. This is Jesus' eyes like a flame of fire. Can you imagine that when Jesus comes again and he will judge the living and the dead? We all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And imagine any of you here telling a little white lie as you seek to justify yourself. And all, that, all the while those eyes with flames, uh, like flames of fire, just penetrating your heart and everything being laid bare before God. Imagine any of you standing before Jesus and saying, I don't believe in God. And Jesus, with his eyes like flames of fire, looking into your heart. And what does he see? And what does he tell you? The fool have said in his heart, there is no God. You fool. We're told in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17 that the apostle fell at his feet as dead. This is the apostle who had leaned against the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. He fell as dead before the, when he had that vision of the glorified Jesus. The purity and the holiness of God expose our sin and the depravity of our hearts. That's what was happening with Abraham, with Jacob, with Isaiah, with John the Apostle. They saw the holiness of God and they shrunk. I wonder how do you and I respond to being in the presence of a holy God? Moses probably felt that he didn't deserve to enter into God's holy presence and neither do any of us deserve to enter into God's holy presence. Most likely, Moses thought that he ought to have been consumed by the fire in that bush. He was afraid to look upon God. The angels in heaven who are without sin, they cover their faces and they even cover their feet in the presence of God. These are angels who have never sinned. The elect angels. Not sinful creatures like us. And even they cover their faces. In the presence of a holy God. The prophet Isaiah. He said woe is me. The apostle John fell at his feet as dead. That should be the attitude of heart of all. Who enter into the presence of a holy God. As it is written in Psalm 118 and verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. And to be had in reverence. Of all that are about him. Elsewhere it says holy and reverend. Last of all, if the infinitely holy God commanded Moses to take off his shoes, shoes which, just normal shoes, well not normal shoes, they wouldn't be like the shoes we wear now, but shoes which would have had, what, some dust, a bit of dirt on them, perhaps, on the soles. That's it. Just dirty shoes. And Moses was commanded to take those shoes off. Then how dare any of us imagine that we can enter into the presence of a thrice holy God when we are polluted Not just a bit of dust and dirt on our shoes, but we are polluted from head to toe, inside and out. Not with dust, but with all manner of sin and depravity. The psalmist asked the question, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Good question, isn't it? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? But then the psalmist gave the answer, the following answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitful. Well, that's it then, folks. Sorted, isn't it? If you're someone who has clean hands, a pure heart, who has not lifted up your soul to the idols of what? Money, self-interest, lust, various inappropriate pleasures, whatever. If you're someone who has never done those things, you may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy presence. Who amongst us fits that description? Who really does have a pure heart? Who really has never lifted up his soul to various idols and carnal delights? There is only one. There's only one person and his name is Jesus. Therefore, if you have not already done so, and I'll finish this with this, you really do need to trust in Jesus as your substitute law keeper and as your sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus is able to present you faultless before the glory and the holiness of God, that thrice holy God. And Jesus can present you faultless in the presence of God by cleansing you with his own precious blood and clothing you in garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness. Amen.